You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Good morning, guys. Thank you so much for being here and doing virtual church with us. Um, Of course, we're all eagerly anticipating when it is safe for us to come back together and meet in person and um, know that as a leadership, as new things come to light, as we get more information about the effectiveness of the vaccine as it rolls out, more people have access to it. Um, We're going to be talking um, continuously to find that space when it's safe. And and as Aaron um, has mentioned, we'll do that in connection and conversation with all of you as well and hearing how things are for you and your households and um, um, where you find yourself in this kind of difficult process because um, we know for sure that it's not just going to be one day everything is Uh, perfectly fine and safe. And um, so in the middle of all that, I have to say, I'm so thankful for uh, the ways this community and all of you have been protecting um, everybody else, um, the people in our community, and also uh, the people around us in our lives. Um, Because the threat for each one of us is probably relatively low, but it becomes so big um, when, when you think about how complicated this can be for a small number of people. So I, I, I can't tell you how appreciative I am of watching the ways that we sacrifice in order to um, make things safer for other people. So thank you. And in the weariness as this goes on, um, we're going to be continuing to meet here. Um, now this month in particular in our nation is Black History Month. And so I know this is something that we're going to be talking about continually. And um, um, this has been an interesting last year as we have um, dealt with continued police brutality um, and shootings and deaths. Um, and not just those that have been the biggest headlines. Um, Of course, this last year has made it uh, abundantly clear um, for all of us in places of privilege how long this has been an issue and how easy it is for us to step back and and forget uh, when we're not directly impacted and affected. And so this is something that when, the protests began happening after George Floyd's death. Um, we made a promise to you in this community that um, that we would make it clear and continue to work towards justice, that we would value um, Black lives here in this community. And so here we are again in Black History Month, and we're going to be continuing to talk about those things. Um, continuing to mourn together and talk about ways and when we are able to do more physically in person to step into new ways of being advocates of justice and peace for the marginalized, um, particularly as we're talking about it today for the black community. So I wanted to open our 
um, service this morning with a prayer. Um, it is a prayer for Black History Month. The author is anonymous, and you may have heard it before, um, but I think it really beautifully encapsulates some aspects of why we celebrate Black History Month and kind of where we've been over the last um, year here, especially for those of us coming from places of privilege. And would you join me in prayer as we open our service? Spirit of abundance, God of grace, mother of hope, we pause now to remember those stories that are all around us, but so often passed over. Those stories that when told are shared because of what someone is, not who they are. This month in our nation's character is Black History Month. Help us to realize that Black history is all of our histories. May the day come when these stories are so widely taught that no month need be separately divided. We know this day will not come until we as a people make different choices. We pray now for those new choices. May we come to see a day where the prison system becomes redemptive, not punitive a day where the legal system learns to focus more squarely on facts and not the color of people's skin. A day where our schools are as well-funded as the needs demand. May our role models be allowed to excel when they thrive and not be taken down for their rich heritage. We know this will require a shift in power and this can be scary for some Give those full of fear hope. May we come to know grace so that our hearts will not be hardened in the pain around us. There are so many beautiful stories needing to be told and we need to get the chance to hear them. Widen our vision so that the history that is shared this month and every month comes to be known as our histories too. We are most human when we see the humanity in others. Amen. So instead of uh, sharing a responsive prayer, I wanted to share with you um, uh, a, a piece of liturgy. It's a prayer that was written by uh, Song Chun Ra and he is a, a professor at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. And this particular piece, I'm gonna share my screen because I think it's helpful to see um, as uh, I read this and we pray together. Oh, and Max said he is at um, Fuller now uh, as of January 1st. That is really fantastic. Um, great. Uh, well, now he's even closer and if not in LA, at least connected to us here at Fuller in LA. Um, anyways, uh, this piece is a reworking of Lamentations 5. Uh, 
um, and is particularly fitting, I think, as we uh, come into Black History Month. And so uh, it, his interspersed uh, prayers as he has written them with um, passages from Lamentations. There we go. Let's pray. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. Remember, Lord, what happened to Ahmad Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. Look and see how they have been murdered by vigilantes and the police. They were precious ones made in your image. Their deaths have shattered their families and all who love them. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be had only at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our prosperity is built on exploitation. All of our systems benefit the privileged, criminal justice, healthcare, employment, education. Basic human rights are taken from the needy, including the right to clean water, even the right to breathe. Our ancestors sin and are no more and we bear their punishments. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because the sword in the desert. We bear the legacy of slavery and white supremacy, black, brown, Asian, Native American, white, none are spared the devastating consequences. Our skin is hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. A man is killed while out for a jog. Police shoot a woman as she sleeps in her home. Police push a man to the ground. He cries out for his mother. He can't breathe. We can't breathe. Women have been violated in Zion and virgins in the towns of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men toil at the millstones. Boys stagger under loads of wood. The elders are gone from the city gates. The young men have stopped their music. Women have been violated throughout our nation's history. Black men have been hung, lynched, and gunned down. Elders are shown no respect. Young men can't find work and are unjustly imprisoned. Civil rights leaders have been assassinated. Young people who speak out their protests through music are silenced. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our heads. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. From Mount Zion, which lies desolate, with jackals prowling over it. Our triumphant proclamations have turned into a funeral dirge. 
our sense of exceptionalism has been exposed. This has happened before and will keep happening. Woe to us, for we see the wrong but refuse to change. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew as that we may find a new way forward. Amen. Thanks for that, Bob. Um, now we'll be transitioning into communion. Um, if you haven't had a chance to grab something to drink or to eat, um, please feel free to do so. Use whatever it is around you. Um, we talk about it a lot, but communion, depending in the tradition you grew up in, um, can mean a lot of different things. Um, there are different doctrinal beliefs in terms of is it really the body of Christ in a metaphysical sense or is it a representation? You know, um, what do these elements mean? How do we take them? Who gets to take them, et cetera, et cetera. As a reminder, because we haven't said in a long time and you might be newer and to the congregation, we believe that communion is uh, fully open to all um, and everyone who wishes to partake and that it represents um, the joining of the people of God together. Um, and the special thing I think around communion is, um, is that it's around this common basic need that every single one of us has, and that's to eat and to drink. Um, life cannot exist um, without those things in some form. Um, and even in the very early days of the church, we see communion as this meal coming together around a banquet, around um, a, a table full of food. Um, we'll do a little Bible lesson real quick. Um, even in the New Testament, we see Paul writing to the church at Corinth um, because there have been reports that they are being unjust in the way they do communion. And um, what ended up happening is there are these home churches and usually at the homes of wealthier members. Um, and Paul heard that the, the wealthier people were sitting around the table and letting the less wealthy people sit outside in the courtyard. And so they'd only get the scraps from communion um, after the wealthy had already gorged themselves. So understandably, Paul is really mad about this and saying this is completely perverting um, what communion means um, and the equality and the justice inherent in the taking of the bread and the wine together. So um, with that in mind, um, and continuing the theme, I wanted to read a very short uh, Langston Hughes poem. Uh, Langston Hughes, of course, um, one of the most famous um, poets in American history. Um, a, um, I guess in the very early 1900s is most of his work, um, 1902 um, to 1967 is um, when he was around. But uh, this one is called I Too, um, about his experience as a black man in turn of the century America. So um, hopefully you have your elements. Um, hopefully you hear some of those themes in this poem around eating and what it means and the equality and the justice in something so simple. Um, I too, <clears throat> I too sing America. I am the darker brother 
They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I too am America. So in the spirit of um, finding justice and equality in something as basic as the food we take and who we take it with and who gets to access it and who doesn't and who gets to sit at the head of the table and who gets to sit at the foot. We all are just little rectangles today. Um, so it's a pretty cool way that that equality can be embodied even in this space. And um, so whatever it is you have as we take the bread or in my case, a cheese it and today, may we remember why we do this and what it reminds us of as the people of God. Um, so I invite you now to take the bread. And in the same way, I invite you to take the cup and representation of the covenant made between God and humanity um, take the cup of equality now. May we be the hands and feet of God each day. Amen. Thanks, Max. All right, for announcements this week, the gathering is Wednesday at 7.30 with Philosophy um, Thursday night at 6, both via the Zoom link. The Ash Wednesday service it will be February 17 at 7.30 p.m. And then starting February 24th through March 31st, um, we will be starting Atheism for Lent. Um, that will be at 8 p.m. Um, in place of the gathering. So if you're interested, you can sign up via the Facebook link um, Aaron, that Aaron created. Our next round of blood drives will be Thursday, April 8th and Thursday, May 20. And Bob, if you could throw the link in the chat, that would be super helpful. And then as always, just a reminder, if anybody needs anything, uh, please reach out and we will help in any way we can. All right, now I'm gonna pass it on to Aaron. Thanks, Angie. So um, does anybody have any prayer requests or words of Thanksgiving? Now is the time to um, bring up our joys and concerns and um, Let's let's listen to uh, what this what uh, what anybody has to say. Anybody want to share something? You can always um, put it in the chat window if you're more comfortable sharing there rather than unmuting. Anybody today? Well, I want to just lead us again in a prayer for Abe and his family, uh, as Abe is in Illinois right now. Um, I believe he's still there. Uh, his niece drowned um, a few weeks ago, a horrible, horrible accident in Costa Rica, Costa Rica, and um, Abe has asked that we pray. And so I just want to continue to remember him and his family at this time. Let's, let's lift him up. We pray for Abe in his hour of need and along with his family as they grieve the, the unspeakable loss of, of Abe's niece. And 
we pray for their comfort. We pray that um, they might find solace in each other's arms and uh, in each other's presence and company at this time. Uh, be with Abe, be with his family. Um, in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. And it looks like Herman uh, posted here in our chat window, my agent's husband died of COVID on Wednesday, age 61, lived in Arizona. Yeah, and we, um, we I remember us praying last week. Um, and we just want to recognize that and uh, just pray that that family receives uh, the comfort and support that they need at this time. Um, what an incredible loss. And it's a reminder of, of the loss that's taking place all around us in people's lives as a result of COVID. And as a reminder for the rest of us to, to continue um, to pray for them and, and to practice uh, safety and to take it seriously. But um, yeah, Herman, thank you for sharing that. All right, well, um, with that, I'm gonna hand it over to, to Max. Thanks. So um, we're going to play a music video uh, today. It's um, an instrumental by one of my favorite bands in the world. Um, and it's a very peaceful and it's just a, it's a, a video um, of, of um, Chinese lanterns. Um, so it's just a very peaceful meditative um, video. And I felt that it was a good um, embodiment in many ways of um, part of the topic we're going to be talking about today in um, I'm assuming we'll be touching on the themes of enlightenment and um, the meditative yes. practices yes. therein. Yeah. Um, so I just invite you to take this time to, if you practice meditation, I know many of you do, um, we can focus on that during this time. If you just want to take some deep breaths as you watch and listen, um, but to use this space as a clearing of our minds um, and, a, and a kind of a reset and a rest. Um, so I hope you enjoy. <clears throat>
All right. Thanks, Max. So today is part two in our world religion study, and we're looking at Buddhism. As always, uh, I want to encourage you to be listening for ideas and concepts that, that resonate with you and your understanding of God or faith and spirituality, and, and be listening for ideas and concepts that challenge you as well or that surprise you. And I want to, um, to encourage you to kind of hold on to those because I, I want to talk about those uh, at the end. I want us to talk about those and to share those at the end. So uh, yeah, be thinking about that. Buddhism began in the sixth century BCE in what is now Eastern India or Nepal. So about 500 years before Christ. And as with every founder of a major religion, whether we're talking about Muhammad, Jesus, Buddha, Moses, it's, it's impossible to separate history from legend myth from reality. And we shouldn't really even try, in, in my opinion, to try to recover the historical Buddha or the historical Jesus or the historical Moses. Um, as, as the legend and the myth surrounding these characters are always part of the deeper truth of a religion and not some kind of worthless husk to be stripped off and, and discarded, you know, leaving only the supposed you know, true core of the faith. This is an unfortunate Western and modern notion that I think we need to do away with. The, the legend and myth we find in these faiths and in these sacred texts are probably laced with real history, but regardless, they are as rich with meaning as any spiritual teaching and moral lesson that we find. And, and Buddhism is no exception. The legend surrounding the Buddha tells us so much about what Buddhism is its insights, values, and traditions. The Buddha's real name was Siddhartha, Siddhartha Gautama. The name Buddha is actually a title, like uh, the title the Christ. It, it's not a real name. It's, it's not the name of the real person, um, but means, uh, in this case, Buddha means enlightened one or awakened one. That's what the title Buddha means. Christ means the anointed one, right? Siddhartha Gautama was born to an aristocratic family in the sixth century BCE, again, in what is uh, now Eastern India or, or Nepal. But in early adulthood, he left home and renounced his wealth and status and became an ascetic, uh, like a monk, living off of what strangers could give him, living off the gratuity of strangers. And he spent his time focusing on meditation and philosophy. I'm sure his family was profoundly disappointed in him. <laughs> it's a tale as old as time, actually. It, it seems in order to do the will of God, you must leave your hometown and family and disappoint your parents to some degree, I guess, just like Jesus did too, but, but I digress. Through his studies uh, and meditation, he believed he discovered a solution to life's biggest problem. And life's biggest problem, according to the Buddha, is suffering. He believed he discovered a way, a way out of suffering or a way to transcend suffering and find serenity through enlightenment. It's important to understand here that the goal in all forms of Buddhism, regardless of the particular sect or school of thought, and there are a lot of different sects and school of thought within Buddhism as there are within you know, denominations within Christianity, but regardless of the different sects or, or school of thought, the goal within Buddhism is always to achieve nirvana or enlightenment by escaping 
suffering, and more specifically, what's called samsara. Samsara. Samsara is the cycle of life, or in other words, the vicious cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, which is fraught with suffering. And the way one escapes samsara and achieves nirvana is through what's through following what's called the Eightfold Path, which is a series of eight laws or eight rules of living that are basically a moral code about living justly with others, practicing spiritual disciplines like meditation and, and mindfulness, and just leading an overall balanced and harmonious life, meaning, excuse me, not being too pious or too irreverent, not being too ascetic, or too decadent and hedonistic, finding a kind of middle path, if you will, uh, a kind of middle path between these extremes. Now, nirvana should not be understood as heaven. There is no developed concept of the afterlife in Buddhism the way that there is in, say, Christianity or Islam. Nirvana may or may not consist of any conscious awareness. Some Buddhists believe in an afterlife, some don't but it's by no means as big of a deal as it, as it is in other religions. Nirvana can, can be understood as, as just a state of enlightenment. There is also no, no deity in Buddhism. Buddha is not God. It's not that Buddhism is atheism per se, it just leaves the question about God unanswered. Buddhism is, is pretty agnostic. Atheism and theism are, are non-issues in Buddhism as it's, as it's entirely preoccupied with the struggles of this life and how to overcome them. Interestingly, in Mahayana and Zen Buddhism, the two, the two kinds, the two denominations I wanna, I wanna focus on most here today, in, in Mahayana and Zen, there isn't a concept of escaping samsara like there are or like there is in, in say Theravada Buddhism and other more conservative Buddhist traditions. In the more conservative Buddhist traditions like Theravada, to escape samsara, which again means this vicious cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, to escape samsara and achieve nirvana means that one has to shed this mortal coil, this, this body, this, this state of being, and become one with ultimate reality or a kind of transcendent consciousness, a state of being beyond time and spatial location, if you will. In, in Mahayana and Zen, on the other hand, nirvana and samsara are not polar opposites but one and the same. What, is, what does this mean? Well, it means that this experience of birth, death, and rebirth is itself nirvana. This life as it really is, this existence as it really is, complete with all of its joys and sorrows, sufferings and celebrations, is nirvana. Thus, one achieves enlightenment by accepting samsara, making peace with samsara. This is probably the most popular Buddhist understanding of nirvana, and here we see uh, the, the non-dualistic nature of Buddhism. Non-dualism is, is the belief in the unity of all things, the, the, interconnect, the interconnectedness of all things, and how everything and everyone is dependent upon each other. There is no real concept of self and other in Buddhism, no real concept of, um, of subject and object. There is only us. There is only kind of this, this unified oneness. A great example of, the, of this non-dualistic idea can be seen in what Dogen, the great 13th century Zen master said. Dogen said this, studying the Buddha is a way of studying oneself. Studying oneself is forgetting oneself. 
Forgetting oneself is being enlightened by all things. Being enlightened by all things is causing the mind-body duality of oneself and the mind-body duality of others to be shed. End quote. This, this non-dualism holds massive, massive social and political implications for Buddhists. It means that we cannot escape our moral responsibility to each other and to the world itself. For we are others and others are us. Caring for the welfare of others is a way of practicing self-care and vice versa. Now, the concepts that really undergird this philosophy, this, this philosophy of the interconnectedness of everything and everyone, and it's really more of a philosophy than a religion per se, uh, perhaps a kind of spiritual wisdom. Uh, Buddhism is really more of a spiritual wisdom and a philosophy than a, than, uh, than, than a religion. Uh, but, but the concepts undergirding this, this philosophy and spiritual wisdom of selflessness and embracing the interconnectedness of all things, that the concepts undergirding these ideas uh, are called sunyata and anatta. I hope I'm pronouncing those right. Sun, sunyata and anatta. Sunyata and anatta means emptiness or nothingness, the, the void, the abyss that sits at the heart of all things, including us. Sunyata and anatta are ultimate reality in Buddhism. And because ultimate reality is, is ultimately unknowable, unthinkable, and an impenetrable mystery in the Buddhist tradition, it's regarded as a kind of non-thing or nothing. Does that, does that make sense? It's kind, of, it's, it's kind of hard to think about, but that which cannot be known or really even thought of might as well be, might as well be nothing. This, this makes um, describing sunyata and anatta really hard, but the best way to describe it is that it's the, is the fundamental mystery that lies at the heart of everything and everyone. And it's, and it's that from which everything emerges. This, this nothing, this void, this abyss. If you've ever thought about what, what came before the Big Bang, uh, Big Bang, if you've ever asked what caused the Big Bang, and if we can know that, what caused that, and so on and so forth. If you've ever mused on this, if you've ever thought about that and kind of felt your brain start to hurt uh, and wondered, you know, how can something come from nothing? That's sunyata and anatta. That's ultimate reality. That's the impenetrable mystery, the void that sits at the heart of everything and from which everything emerges and through which everything is connected. It's like the common ancestor we all share. We all come from nothing, which is actually a very old Jewish and Christian idea as well. Uh, this is the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. Perhaps you've heard of that before, it's Latin. It means creation from nothing. This is a very Christian and Jewish idea based on Genesis one. It means creation from nothing. And we can talk more about that later if you want. But we experience this, this void. We experience this void, this, this utter nothingness, both within and without, both internally and externally, both in the universe outside ourselves and the universe within ourselves. This is sunyata and anatta. Sunyata is the void out there. Anatta is the void within here. How, how does this relate to suffering and overcoming suffering, which again is the, the central problem within Buddhism uh, that Buddhism seeks to address. Well, Buddhism teaches that because nothing is ultimate reality, our desires, therefore, are questions of meaning and purpose, which create and sustain so much of our suffering. These questions and, and desires begin to, to just dissolve away. In other words, Buddhism holds 
that the root of our suffering has to do with our drives and questions like, why am I here? What's the purpose to my existence? Why did, why did this happen to me? Why did that happen to me? How do I find wholeness? How do I find meaning? How do I find my true self? How do I, how do I find my destiny and, and find satisfaction in life? How do I fill up the lack within me? These kinds of questions are ultimately unanswerable. And yet, you know, these questions preoccupy us, right? And they create our deepest sufferings. In this way, it's our inability to accept the innate nothingness or meaninglessness of life that keeps us locked up in suffering. Buddhism teaches that through mindfulness and meditation, we can learn to accept these difficult truths and liberate ourselves and make peace with the void. And, the, and, and we can empty ourselves of our need for answers, our need for, for objects and things that we think will make us whole. In this way, a kind of wholeness is found in the, in the, in the practice of embracing the lack. A kind of wholeness is found in the practice of embracing the, the lack and emptying ourselves of self, emptying ourselves of the, this insatiable quest for meaning and perfect wholeness. That's, that's kind of paradoxical, right? But that's Buddhism. And, and at first it sounds pretty negative to say everything is nothing, embrace the nothing. But it's actually quite liberating and life-giving when you think about it. And perhaps the best way to understand this is by looking at the Buddhist practice of making mandalas. Maybe you've uh, seen a mandala before. I'm gonna share one here with you, see if I can share my screen. Um, Let's see if this works. Can, uh, can you guys see that? Can someone respond yes or no? Yes. We cool. see it. Yes. All right. It's beautiful, right? It's actually made of, th th those are sand grains, multicolored sand grains. Isn't that amazing? And it's a painstaking process that Buddhist monks um, do this over many days, maybe weeks, um, where they use by hand, they, they drop each one of these sand grains to create these incredibly incredibly intricate designs, right? Um, quite, quite stunning. And there's lots of examples of these. You can find lots of them online. Um, and the monks spend days um, making these only to destroy them soon thereafter. In fact, the sand is often poured back into the river from which it came to further drive home this point that ultimately it belongs, this incredible work of beauty, it too belongs to the void like all things do, including us. But this painstaking practice of creating these beautiful mandalas and then ritually destroying them is a kind of meditation on the inherent emptiness of all things and, and how we can acknowledge this and yet still pour ourselves passionately into our work or pour ourselves passionately into just living and loving. Uh, we, we can do this knowing that nothing lasts forever and that everything is destined for the void such a way of living is testament really to the power of, of the human spirit and our ability to, to live deeply without holding on to things too tightly, right? And being okay with change. It's a lesson on being okay with change, being okay with loss. That, that's what I think Buddhism is ultimately about. So with that, that is uh, the completion of my little lesson on Buddhism. I realize that's covering a lot of territory in 10 minutes or something like that. But I wanna open it up now uh, for questions or comments. Um, does anybody have any, any questions or comments about that 
uh, before I ask some more um, discussion questions. I'm, I'm curious what resonated with you uh, in, in all of that. What, what did you like or find meaningful uh, in that little exposition of Buddhism? Um, what, what, what stood out to you the most? What did you like the most? Or perhaps, what didn't you like? <laughs> what did you find troubling? Uh, anybody want to share that? I could start us off. Hi, it's me, Isabel. Hey, Isabel. Good morning. So um, part of what you were talking about really reminded me of the uh, <clears throat> the talk you did a little while ago about the Native American religions, yeah. about the oneness of things. So I just kind of connected those two things. And I thought it was interesting how <clears throat> a lot of these ancient religions uh, were, you know, well, well, they're all ancient, but um, how they all like focus on the oneness. And, and I'm curious, I mean, and this is like maybe a down the road discussion point, but um, how does Christianity regard that, that sense? I mean, how is it similar or different? I guess that's what I'm having trouble understanding. That's a great question. Um, and yeah, you're right to point out that how indigenous religions uh, do uh, share something in common with Buddhism and other, and even Hinduism, uh, this idea, you know, this tantric idea of, of kind of the uh, interweaving and the oneness of, of things. Yeah. Um, how does Christianity uh jive or not jive with that is, is your question. Um, you know, I, I think the nature of the incarnation itself, right, this idea of God becoming human, right, this, this deeply Christian idea that, that in some ways the divine uh, became enfleshed, uh, right, and took on uh, human, a human form. Uh, I think Christianity is actually deeply, deeply informed by this idea of, of you know, this, this merging of heaven and earth, if you will, this merging of the spiritual and the physical or this, the sacred and the mundane in this, in this doctrine of the incarnation. This is my opinion, but it's also the opinion of other theologians. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think Christianity is really ultimately about that. Um, you know, there's this idea upon Christ's crucifixion, the temple curtain was torn, right? The, the curtain separating you know, the, uh, the location of the divine and, and the rest of the world, this was torn, this was shattered in Christ. Um, again, you know, even, even early Christians understanding of that, like in Paul's writing, this idea that in Christ, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that these ways that we divide up the world between secular and the secular and sacred, between us and them, um, the, the social stratifications that we create, these are utterly destroyed and everything is made one in Christ in this kind of ultimate reality of, of God. Um, I think that's a deeply Christian idea, Isabel. Um, and I think it's one that should inform our, our politics, <laughs> our ethics, right? Um, does somebody else wanna, wanna respond to that or, or muse on that or have anything to add about that? If you look at John chapter one, kind of plays into that, you know, all things were created through him, you know, that he was in the beginning. We, we tend to get rid of that mysticism that is so prevalent in John chapter one. And we're like, eh, let's just get onto his life, you know, but yeah, if yeah. you read it, you actually see that, that the presence of God as defined as being in all things from the beginning, which mere, which is similar to what we find across the world, you know, in creation, creation stories and religious philosophies that God is, 
not just a being, but in everything. Yeah, it's good, Nathan. And, and you reminded me of what Paul said in the book of Acts at Mars Hill, right? Um, telling, telling the philosophers, actually, uh, the, the Greek philosophers, uh, look, you know, I, I affirm uh, what you affirm, that in him we live and move and have our being, that, that this is God, right? This kind of pantheistic, panentheistic idea, Paul, Paul says, that in him we live and move and have our being. Um, everything is taking place within the beinghood, the ontological essence, if you will, of, of God. These, these are profoundly Christian ideas and ancient ideas. Um, and I think, and just, just to kind of take it a step further, I think the reason why we find this idea recurrent uh, in so many different religions is because I think we as human beings, as conscious sentient beings, uh, who, who I think identify with other forms of life and creation, I think we, innate, we innately understand, universally understand that we are connected to everything and to everyone, that there is something about consciousness and life and beinghood that does link us to the rest of the world, to the rest of the cosmos. I think that's something that is absolutely universally true that we find in many, and that we find in many different religions because it is innately known by us. Does that make sense? I think we innately know that. Max, did you want to respond to that? I saw you on mute. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I was I was gonna I was responding, but then I was also processing what you were saying at the same time. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, no. You can take a minute. Oh no 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 worries at all. I was just gonna say. Uh, I agree with uh, what you were just saying. Um, I was going to make the point too that we see that it's probably heretical to say, well, it is heretical to say, depending who you ask, um, like even within the Trinity, right? So the way we understand it has become very gendered, obviously, for the patriarchal structures that it was um, canonized through. But even in that, right, it's central to this idea of Christianity is this oneness between what the concept of the divine, right, Father creator um, and the concept of humanity in the sun and then the spirit right? So the spirit world um, and spirituality and the soul, whatever you want to put a name on it, but all being together, right? So even in some, in some really interesting ways, just as I'm thinking about it, Christianity has the same theme that has showed up, shown up in different ways, but at its core, one of the tenets to many Christian faiths are is the trinity right this oneness of many um and while we might look at it very literally sometimes and it, it can be a much wider concept of saying like this is what it means it's it's divinity together with humanity together with spirit um and the oneness i think can be threaded through there i think there's also just lots of lots of ways that shows up um through even the the scriptures and it's really a matter of which thread you want to follow through all of them i think there's a lot of those themes that you can that you can find um but agree that it doesn't come through as clearly as in some other religions that really prioritize that concept but it's there yeah one of the features of christianity that makes it unique is that there's a, um, and we don't really pay attention a lot to this in evangelical Christianity, but the physical and the spiritual are married and they're not, um, they're not separable. You know, when Christ was transfigured, he wasn't spirit. He was some kind of physical, spiritual being. 
And uh, it's it's kind of a feature of Christianity to to be um, for the physical. I mean, and it could be just sleep, you know, uh, because it's old. Uh, and maybe they didn't um, have a concept of the soul the way that we do today. But uh, there's a lot of other old religions as well. Buddhism is a good example. Uh, actually, well, Buddhism, you become pure energy or pure nothingness at the end. Uh, there's, you know, uh, Buddha and a bunch of others transcended and became part of the oneness, but they never, they lost their bodies. And Christianity's God and Christianity's concept of the afterlife includes a new body, a physicality to it, which is pretty unique um, compared to all the other religions. Yeah. Good points. Thank you, Jason. Somebody else want to respond? Can I respond? Hey, yeah, sure, Ashley. Um, I think one of the, I really love this talk. I think it was really great. Thanks. I think one of the um, benefits to Buddhism is when, have you ever seen that headspace um, clip where he shows you that he's like standing on the side of the road and he's watching the cars go by and meditation means not having to jump in the car every time a thought comes in or a negative thought comes by. That's good. I think, I think that kind of mindfulness and meditation is like, it's just everything. Um, for Buddhism is being able to sort of separate ourselves from what we're thinking and feeling and kind of separating. I think also one of the things that I find that's connecting for me in terms of this is Buddhism doesn't make everything a salvation issue. Whereas as evangelicals, we were raised to make everything a salvation issue. I mean, yeah. you know, even like Sermon on the Mount, you even look at someone the wrong way, you are committing adultery. You even call someone an a-hole, you are killing them. I mean, yeah. whereas Buddhism is like, nothing, that's, this is meaningless. Come back to yourself. Come back to your interconnectedness to everyone, you know, um, which I find liberating. I think um, for me, it's less about nihilism and purposelessness and more about being connected to other people and protecting that through mindfulness and meditation. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, thank you, Ashley. I think uh, building on that, uh, that we have Buddhism to thank for the the turn in Christianity towards you know contemplative more contemplative practices in the West because we kind of I feel like like meditation used to be a bad thing like that was like New Age, and now in Christians like even even conservative ones it's like now can meditate and think about the scriptures and this the presence of yogic practices and mindfulness which has permeated <laughs> at least american culture which is buddhism stripped of all of its religious lingo but the the movement of mindfulness is straight from buddhist practices from the east that now that we have taken and adopted into our ways and actually christianity has benefited from this intersectionality of like, we are now being able to engage our scriptures in a way that we never, we, we just, we weren't practicing that before. We are able to hold prayer in a way that we weren't doing before because it got too rigid. It got too, 
too much about salvation and doing right things and staying away from the bad things and keeping your soul on the path to heaven and not being in the moment and not living this life. So I think it's whether we want to like, whether we like it or not, we have a lot to actually be thankful for, for, for that Buddhism. Hey, oh, May, May commented and said uh, her daughter's school now has classes on mindfulness. And um, I think um, my understanding of, of um, what's the word I'm looking for, social work, but like the um, therapy industry, and that's, that's the wrong way to put it, but mindfulness is used a lot uh, by therapists uh, and uh, psychologists today because um, it's just a healthy human practice. I think that helps us live in, in the present and not be so neurotic, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and not in our own selves, I guess is the right way to put it. Thank you, Nathan. Yeah, that's a good point. Christianity is informed in some ways uh, for the better uh, by, by these other religions. Um, and, and maybe in some ways vice versa, I don't know, but uh, we are absolutely living in a global village now, right? And, and these kinds of synchronicities or, um, you know, modifications are, are inevitable and it's not necessarily cultural appropriation. It's just the way that, you know, cultures refine each other and change each other and inform each other, right? I like that. Other, other thoughts today about Buddhism or what we're talking about? Does anyone hear any overlap with the book of Ecclesiastes here? You know, and the book of Ecclesiastes talks about, you know, how uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, emptiness is in everything. And yet, you know, despite this, what is our lot in life? Uh, but, but the lot that God has given us to enjoy our short, short time on this, on this earth, to enjoy the work that our hands find to do, the book of Ecclesiastes says, despite the fact that everything we do will return to dust. And so will we, <laughs> you know, the book of Ecclesiastes is obviously part of the Old Testament, it's part of the Jewish tradition. And it's, and it's older than the, than the New Testament, right? Uh, and yet it, it contains these kind of timeless truths, that I think resonate or overlap with Buddhist teachings as well. Again, I think these are kind of innate truths. And, and, and I guess for me, I just wanted to remark that I think even in the gospels, I, I think the most Buddhist, part of the gospels you could say put it like this uh is in matthew uh i think it's part of the sermon on the mount where jesus uh uses talks about the lilies of the field right kind of a parable where he encourages us to be like the the lilies of the field which are here today and gone tomorrow he says right and their place remembers them no more and yet they are they are adorned with more beauty and more splendor than even king solomon and all of his regalia jesus is calling us to in essence be like the lilies of the field right that are, you know, adorned with beauty and splendor, but are here today and gone tomorrow. And yet, you know, um, we can be like that. We, we, can, we can accept life's frailty and, and temporality and yet celebrate the beauty and the splendor and the wonder of ourselves and others. Um, we don't have to, it's not an either or a proposition. We, we, can, we can accept the fact that life is fleeting and that uh, we don't know uh, <laughs> really what comes next or we, we don't control um, these things, but yet life is beautiful and worth, worth, um, you know, I guess celebrating and, and, and seeing as precious, I guess. And for me, that's a very Buddhist moment in the gospels. Uh, but anybody else want to reflect on any of this? Do you like that? Or is it terrifying? I don't know. Hey, Aaron, it's T. Hey, T. Welcome. Hey, yeah, yeah. thank you. 
Um, I, I don't have any like remarks to add, but I, I loved everything you said. So I'm kind of like Max in that I'm processing it all. And, um, and I actually, I do have something to say. It doesn't terrify me. And I think, um, I guess I'm not too um, afraid of seeing similarities between Christianity and Buddhism because I see them both as like achieving, trying to achieve the same thing, just different approaches. And um, yeah, I think it, it's possible mindfulness and, and focusing on oneself. Maybe that that is what Jesus wanted all along in the beginning. And over the centuries, we we have lost some of what maybe he he intended to preach for us. I don't know. Because when I think of, of Jesus in his time, he seemed very Zen. And so unlike everyone else, um, it's, it's really likely that it lost, we lost some of the traditions and, and what, um, yeah, I don't know if it's making sense to anyone, but it's making sense to me. So. Well, yeah, thank you for adding that. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I, I personally think that you know, I'm part of this thing called this radical theology school of thought, which is yes. about kind of em embracing yeah. the Jesus that emptied himself of self in, in a sense by, you know, uh, you know, through the crucifixion and the incarnation and, and being the man for others, so to speak, right? L living for justice and equality and laying down his life for the cause of love and justice and equality, right? And in this right. sense, Jesus, Jesus was about this life, this world, and, and matters of justice and the practicalities and, mm -hmm. and alleviating human suffering. Jesus was about alleviating the human suffering of this life and this world and, and for me, you're right, T, I think that's very Zen. I, I think the idea of, you know, as Paul puts it, this idea of kenosis uh, in Philippians, this idea that, in, that Christ emptied himself and in right. this way became the man for others and in this way shows us the path toward redemption and salvation. I think that's very Zen and I think that's very Jesus. And that's, that's part of this radical theology school of thought as well that I'm very much into. But anyway, thank you for those remarks. I think you're I think you're right. Thank you. Yeah, Max, he retreats to solitude every time a crowd gathers to, to pray, right? To, to yeah. meditate. Not, I didn't mean to put that in quotes, that. <laughs> to pray. Uh, you know, um, yeah, that's really good. Aaron, what do you mean by when you say non-dualism? Sure, that's a great question. Um, non-dualism means that um, you don't see this two world split between the secular and the sacred, between the spiritual and the physical, between the things of heaven and the things of earth. Um, there's lots of different ways of, of looking at that. Um, does that make sense, Randy? Kind of, so it's all like one yeah. thing and space. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a way of saying that, it's ultimately a way of affirming this life, this reality uh, as transcendent or as, um, you know, infused with, with the divine, the sacred, wh however you want to, whatever vocabulary word um, you want to use there. It, it's a way of saying uh, and affirming this, this life in all of its depth as ultimately something that's ultimate, uh, that, that, that the absolute is here and now in the way that we can embrace love and life as it really is, despite all of its, all of its difficulties. Um, maybe it's helpful to understand what dualism is for so many of us who grew up in evangelicalism, we were raised in a kind of dualistic worldview. This idea, which is which is Gnosticism, <laughs> to use another fancy term, I guess, but this idea that that the flesh, this world, is fallen and evil, and something we need to we need to shed in order to achieve glory and, and heaven on high. 
this this world is to be done away with. God's going to destroy it, and only only those of us who are Christians will get to heaven and and achieve you know glory on high and and everlasting rewards and bliss. You know, so this world is trash. It's all about getting to heaven. Believe the right things now. Live right now, so that you can ditch this crummy place and get to heaven one day. That's that's dualism. And again, it's a, it's a it's it's not just a kind of spirituality that's that's problematic, but it but it it kind of trickles down into your politics and into your ethics and into your entire worldview as a way of negating this world and and seeing seeing this world as something that's that's awful. And of course, this is reflect reflected, if 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 you will, in even kind of evangelical treatments of ecology and environmentalism. You know, let's exploit the world. Who cares what happens to this earth? It's going to hell in a handbasket. That's that's where dualism kind of leads um, traditionally in, in kind of evangelical or fundamentalist circles. So we here uh, at Central often want to really you know preach a kind of non-dualism, a way of saying and a way of deeply affirming this life, this world, as sacred, as holy, as divine, uh, because we believe that that's ultimately what the incarnation and the crucifixion is really about, and at least, at least that's my point of view. Um, does that make sense, Randy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that help? Sort of like an all interconnectedness. As yeah. Like yeah, and that's, that's, that's kind of what I want us to affirm by looking at indigenous religions and Buddhism, is that kind of interconnectedness and non-duality. Uh, and this kind of deep affirmation of this life is is holy and sacred mm. and total. Mm. I think that's really um, healing and liberating and all that good stuff. I just want to say a thought that I had really quick. I was just about to say interconnectedness when Randy was, I was just about to type it in there. Um, I really love, I really love how it just kind of gives a, a different beauty to the world. So uh, when we were, when I was growing up, it was everything's connected to God. It wasn't everybody, everything is connected to everyone else. And I feel like that really breaks down barriers because you can see beauty in everything. And, and I really love that idea. Um, and yeah, so anyway, I had other thoughts, but that was, that was kind of the basis of it is it was just such a beautiful way to look at the world um yeah that's really good yeah may thank you i I hear you saying that it's it's more about a horizontal connected connection connectedness rather than a vertical one and seeing god as part of that horizontal connectedness to everything and everyone rather than just me and my relationship with god and and you know (laughs) yeah i i think that's absolutely true indigenous religions buddhism they're they're more horizontal uh, unfortunately, the Christianity many of us were raised on was more vertical. And I think what we're trying to do is reclaim the horizontal nature of, of the Gospels, of Christianity. And I think that's, that's where the beauty lays, in my opinion, yeah, in the horizontal connection, rather than just that vertical one. That's good, May. Thank you. Other, other thoughts today? Ah, Corey says that there's an interview with Bono. Bono is always good for some some, some of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. He talks about how the New Testament is God horizontal. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Bono is good like that. The kingdom of God is here. Another, you know, big point of the gospels. That's a horizontal affirmation. Yeah.
Well, good stuff, everybody. Um, thanks, thanks for being here. Thanks for a great dialogue per usual. Uh, I think next week we'll look at Islam and I'll, I'll focus specifically more on kind of Islamic mysticism. Um, there's, there's some really, really interesting things in Islam um, that I think that we can look at that are horizontal um, as well. So um, good stuff, everybody. Um, yeah, thanks for being here. We're officially dismissed. If you want to hang out and chat, please do so. But otherwise, um, go in peace. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you, Randy. Bye. Take care.